Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Since President Trump canceled planned strikes on Iran Thursday night, there's been a lot of discussion about the U.S. side of the tensions with Iran. But let's talk about Iran's tensions and strategic interests inside Iran. With me is Ahmad Sadri. He's professor of sociology and anthropology at Lake Forest College. Ahmad, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, you know, President Trump imposed more sanctions today against Iran. And what is what do you think Iran's uh, reaction to this will be? How does Iran react to more more of the same? Well, Iran has been under sanctions of one sort or of another for four decades, and uh, it has been very inventive uh, in circumventing them. Of course. Uh, the pressures will increase on the ordinary people and uh, some uh, necessary items will be scarce in the market. But this is not the kind of pressure that is going to bring Iran to heel, although uh, it will be pressure enough to uh, basically persuade them to be more flexible. But it is not a make or break kind of a thing, and I'm sure President Trump knows that. Uh, well, the situation in Iran is um, interesting. I was reading a piece in Politico by the Council on Foreign Relations person on Iran, and he was talking about Iran being um, needing a narrative of success in order to re enter negotiations with the United States and shooting down the drone and uh, this whole scenario kind of gives them that opportunity. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, it does. Basically, uh, face-saving uh, is definitely a part of any kind of a compromise in these situations. Both sides need to have a sense of uh, walking away from negotiations, not entirely beaten. And so it is possible that this uh, episode will basically work towards creating a safe-facing way for Iran to enter negotiations. And so this is the situation that uh, we are facing now. Well, how does Iran do that in a face-saving way? I mean, Iran's got this uh, nuclear deal, which it is still signed on to with all these other parties other than the United States. And they wanted to have negotiations based on the nuclear deal that they have. Uh, but is that um, uh, something they're climbing down on? Well, the situation is really very interesting because the uh, perception in Iran is that after 40 years, their government did something right and uh, walked towards normalization of Iran's international stance. And uh, what they received in response was basically kicking the teeth as President Trump basically uh, abandoned that that deal. So in the eyes of the Iranian people, they feel that they have been wronged and uh, the nuclear deal for them was a way of of uh, reconnecting uh, with the international community. It's a great sense of disappointment. Now, the people in Iran are kind of blaming the government of President Rouhani for uh, basically uh, negotiating with Americans and ignoring the warnings of the right wing. Uh, section of the Iranian politics that warned against uh, dealing with Americans. And so they kind of, in a way, have egg on their faces. But uh, at this point, uh, if there is a way back towards negotiation, 
it, that is what Iranian people want. At the same time, this episode of shooting down of the drone can't help but uh, boost the uh, you know nationalistic rhetoric of Iranians that they are not going to roll over and 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 play dead when uh, they are under this kind of bullying and and international pressure that they consider to be unjust. Well, how does Rouhani enter into negotiations with the U.S.? And, I mean, it would seem to be kind of unpopular for a lot of people. And there's parliamentary elections that are coming up in Iran early next year. This doesn't seem to uh, all fold together as uh, an easy place to be. It is. It is a very hard situation for uh, anyone to... Uh, face, especially going into an election, they don't want to appear weak. And they haven't. I mean, if you believe, and nobody knows whether these tankers uh, have been uh, uh, sabotaged or um, attacked by Iranians, but let us assume that they were. If this is the case, Iranians are kind of signaling that they are able to escalate the situation, if they are attacked, the, the theater of the confrontation will not be between only a superpower like the United States and a country in the Middle East. It will be a, a very big uh, theater of con- confrontation from the Red Sea to the Sea of Oman. Uh, right after the uh, recent escalations, Iran... Um, if, if, if we believe this narrative that Iran did these things, Iran attacked a, a target in the Red Sea and a target in the Sea of Oman. Both of them basically are outside the area that people thought Iran is going to fight, which is the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, so Iran is saying uh, closing the Straits of Hormuz is not the, their only option. They can uh, escalate the war and they can fight an asymmetric warfare against uh, American interests and assets and allies in the Middle East. And this will definitely give pause to anyone who starts, who wants to start a preemptive war against Iran. Uh, you know, it, it sounds like um, the Trump administration maybe did, doesn't. Uh, how do you read how they're viewing what the message Iran is sending with all this? Because they, they don't seem to. Um, some of them obviously don't want negotiations. It sounds like John Bolton would rather, uh, you know, bomb Iran and doesn't want negotiations. But maybe Mike Pompeo does, or, or does Trump have to uh, break away from the um, from his advisors, basically, to to get into this negotiation scenario? Yeah, that is an area that's entirely opaque to me. I really don't know what's going. To- on in the Oval Office and who is prevailing over whom. This uh, calling off of the um, attacks is really baffling to me and the rationale for it doesn't make any sense as if uh, Mr. Trump didn't know how many people are going to be killed in this and only in the last 10 minutes he learned about this. He probably have known this for days and days unless we assume he wasn't paying attention. So it really doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, and who knows what's going on? There are definitely people such as Bolton and to some extent Pompeo who want a, a hot war. There are some Republicans who are agitating for it. And there are many people, especially conservative Republicans, who have second thoughts. Uh, and they don't want 
another war in the Middle East, as the majority of American people don't want such a war. Uh, some of the Iran, uh, American allies in the region, such as Saudi Arabia and Israelis, want a proxy war to be fought by Americans to defend their interests in the region. But uh, the American, the majority of American people don't want another Afghanistan or another Iraq. And uh, people like Bolton, they're basically neocons who got us into the Iraq conflict. They are at it trying to get us into the Iran conflict. And the people like Bolton, they don't think they, uh, he was wrong uh, in getting us into the Iraq conflict. That is a view that the majority of Americans uh, and analysts disagree with. And so who knows who will prevail in this, but it is a very, very dicey and dangerous situation. And anything can get us into a really awful kinetic war in the region. Now, you know, President Trump has been saying things like, uh, you know, I don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. And that that seems he seems to be shrinking his goal because the Pompeo parameters are much larger than that. They're all about Iran basically standing down on its uh, foreign interests uh, in in the Middle East. And um, is that a good sign? I mean, do you think that there is a would that be? Uh, does anybody in Iran think that the that the uh, administration, you know, really wants Iran without a nuclear weapon as its primary issue? It is totally confusing listening to Trump when he says he doesn't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Well, that is exactly what JCPOA, the famous Iran nuclear deal with America, and uh, permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany made with Iran, and it ensured that Iran would not have a nuclear weapon or nuclear military use of, of nuclear energy. There was intrusive... Um, uh, monitoring 24-7 cameras all over the place. 157-page document was signed. It looks like what Trump wants is like a two-paragraph agreement and a photo op that Iran would come and say, oh, oh, we say, uncle, we don't want nuclear weapons. This is what they have said. They have said repeatedly there are fatwas of, by, by Supreme Leader about it. There is negotiation and signing of, of rigorous documents Coming up and saying it and, and basically accepting that Mr. Trump's resolved all of this, it looks like from statements like that, that this is all it takes. And so a lot of people in Iran are saying, you know, why, why don't we do what, what North Koreans did? You know, give him the, the photo op, but in reality, don't give him anything. And this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of, uh, uh, you know, gesture that looks like Mr. Trump wants. So, but again, the very fact that Iranians would negotiate with, with Trump, that is going to be uh, perceived as, as weakness. So I don't hold my breath for Iranians to come up and say, okay, let's have a kind of a pro forma agreement and negotiation. Uh, but again, uh, who knows, maybe they will wise up to this and they will say, okay, uh, you know, we are going to have a negotiation, quote unquote, and we are going to say, uncle, and in the meanwhile, in reality, repeat what we have always said, which is we don't want nuclear weapons. 
I'm talking with Ahmed Sadri, professor of sociology and anthropology at Lake Forest College. We're discussing how the recent uh, crisis with Iran is affecting politics in that country. In a few moments, we'll be talking about the conditions that the U.S. government is inflicting on migrant children in border detention centers. Stay tuned. I do want to explore that idea of Iran going down a North Korea path. Um, it, it, does that? Uh, it's kind of an appealing thing it seems like for um, for almost both sides they could kind of have negotiations they could go on and off again like North Korea they could stall until after their elections are over and um, and then maybe cut a deal or something yeah again that that would be the smart uh, choice if Iranians really entered into this kind of pro forma negotiation and said, okay, you know, we have seen the light and we don't want nuclear weapons anymore, which is what they have said always. And, uh, you know, what else do you want? Do you want more intrusive uh, monitoring? Sure, we are going to allow more intrusive monitoring because we are not doing anything untoward. And in the meanwhile, all of these promises that Trump is going to make everybody rich and and and, and he's going to be the savior of Iran, uh, well, at least here they are not going to impose more sanctions and we are going to wait and see. Uh, it all depends on whether or not Iranian uh, right wing, the, especially the supreme leader, is going to be able to uh, swallow his pride and kind of say, okay, we are going to have some kind of a negotiation, especially in the light of this downing of the drone. And so that is one possibility, and I think that would be the least damaging uh, way to go. But from the Supreme Leader's point of view, he doesn't trust the United States, and he has um, probably come to the conclusion that the United States just wants regional hegemony for itself and its allies, and, and, and there's no point in really going through this facade of negotiations. Yes, that's what he has always believed, and believing that he okayed uh, and sanctioned uh, the negotiations. And now that things have gone haywire, he has come back and said, I told you so, you can't trust these Americans. Now, again, uh, if anything, this guy is like a, an 80-year-old Ayatollah, and he didn't get to be an 80-year-old Ayatollah by being reckless. So um, what he has called very cleverly a kind of heroic flexibility um, in the case of negotiating with Americans or what uh, the previous Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini called uh, taking a swig from the chalice of poison. Uh, basically, these are available as, as in the toolbox of these uh, uh, theocrats that they can say, well, you know, tough times will require certain uh, amount of flexibility. It is possible that he might, you know, choose this path. Uh, but uh, again, it's not very likely that he would. And they are sticking to their guns and they are taking a very tough stance. Um, a couple of times, basically, they have shown that they mean business, with the, especially with the downing of this uh, plane, and also by escalating against uh, shipping in the in the uh, Gulf, in the Persian Gulf. If if this is Iranian um, operation and not false flag, and and nobody knows right now, they are debating this in the in the United Nations Security Council. But uh, you know. Only time will tell, but, uh, you know, I should say that I'm extremely worried about a hot war 
uh, breaking out any minute in the in the Persian Gulf. Ahmed Sadri is professor of sociology and anthropology at Lake Forest College. We talk with him frequently about Iran. Thanks a lot for joining us again and talking about the most recent element of the crisis. It was my pleasure. Thank you. In a few minutes, we'll talk about another decision the president reversed himself on the ICE raids. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Earlier, we talked about the domestic fallout in Iran from President President Trump's last-minute call to pull back from airstrikes in that country. And it's not the only big decision he recently reversed after announcing a wave of nationwide raids on undocumented immigrants in 10 major cities. The president delayed the raid by two weeks, pending a compromise with Democrats on asylum and immigration legislation. A legal exchange that's been making the rounds is one of the Trump, uh, the Trump immigration lawyer and the grilling that they took last week in the judges from the Ninth Circuit Court. And this is part of the exchange. We're going to play this at several minutes. And this part is about the filthy conditions that migrant children endure in border detention facilities. Welcome to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, we only have one case on the calendar this afternoon, Flores versus Barr. Uh, and I guess it's the government going first. When you're ready. Yeah, we want to talk about toothbrushes and so on and safe and secure, Your Honor, I'd be happy certified, if, if, confined. I mean, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> there are so many things, Your Honor. I, I was planning to address the CBP issues. That's the conditions okay. in the CBP facilities. Right. Okay, but you're really going to stand up and tell us that, that being able to sleep isn't a question of safe and sanitary conditions? Your Honor, I think what I'd like to what I'd like to stand up and say, really say is that. to focus <laughs> is to focus the court on um, what what the question is here in this appeal, and that is this is a, a, a consent decree, and it is focused on the language, the four corners of the language in the consent decree. The district court looked first: was there a violation of CBP's own TED standards? Well, I'm not sure she did that first. And I'm not sure that the TED standard is really all that different from the more general statement or category or requirement of the agreement. Yes, the TED's standard is more detailed, but that sounds to me as it could quite easily come under the more general category of safe, safe and secure. Well, Your Honor... Safe, safe and sanitary, sorry. Uh, any number of things might fall under those categories, and I think... Yes, I, but, can... but sleep surely does. Right? You can't be sanitary or safe as a human being if you can't sleep. But the ultimate conclusion is, is safe and sanitary is a singular category in the agreement. One has to assume left that way and not enumerated by the parties because either the parties couldn't reach agreement on how to enumerate that or that it was left to the agencies to determine. Or it was relatively obvious, uh, and it's least obvious enough so that if you're putting people into a crowded room to sleep on a concrete floor with an aluminum foil blanket on top of them, that doesn't comply with the agreement. I mean, it may be that they don't get super thread counts Egyptian linens. I get that. But 
the testimony that the district judge believed was it's really cold. In fact, it gets colder when we complain about it being cold. We're forced to sleep crowded with the lights on all night long, and all you do put us on is the concrete floor with an aluminum blanket. I mean, I understand that some outer boundary, there may be some definitional difficulty, but no one would argue that this is safe and sanitary, or at least I don't think you're arguing that, are you? Your Honor, I think what I'm arguing is that that the the way that the district court reached the conclusion was to say these specific items, and and I I think, I I will acknowledge, I think sleep is the more difficult end of what I'm arguing. But are you arguing seriously that you do not read the agreement as requiring you to do something other than what I've just described, cold all night long, lights on all night long, sleep on the concrete, and you get an aluminum foil blanket? Are you saying that that's okay under the agreement? which they also said. I think what I find that inconceivable that the government would say that that is safe and sanitary. We also well, look at which is your strongest argument then. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think what I would go to is that when you start enumerating, for example, specific hygiene items, and, I, and the way that was done is that the the court in, sort of enumerated these and say these fall under the rubric, these fall in the category well, of what it, can be required. Again, it wasn't perfume soap; it was soap. It wasn't, you know, high-class milled soap. It was soap. And that sounds, though, that's part of uh, safe and sanitary. Are, are, you, are you disagreeing with that? What I'm disagreeing with is that the court, the court ultimately concluded these things would fall under here, and then simply by not providing them, you have violated that tenet of the agreement. In that per- well, particular... Well, what do you... To me, it's more like, as Judge Fletcher says... It's within everybody's common understanding that, you know, if you don't have a toothbrush, if you don't have soap, if you don't have a blanket, it's not safe and sanitary. Wouldn't everybody agree to that? Do you agree to that? Well, I I think it's – I think those are – there's fair reason to find that those things may be part of safe and sanitary. No, maybe are a part. What do you say maybe? You mean there are circumstances when a person doesn't need to have – uh, a toothbrush, toothpaste, and soap for days. That was Sarah Fabian from the Justice Department's Office of Immigration Litigation as she was questioned by judges on the Ninth Circuit Court about conditions that migrant children face in detention facilities along the border. With us to discuss what's happening is Susan Zesch and Moni Ruiz Velasco. Susan is the executive director of the Posen Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago, and Moni is an immigration lawyer, organizer, and executive director of PASO, the West Suburban Action Project, a community based social justice organization. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Um, Susan, do you want to give us a little more background on what's happening in that case? Because um, there's a lot, there's some lingo going on about standards and things, but I think most people will probably get the gist of what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of things going on. The case started in the 1980s, and there has been a court order in place governing what the immigration authorities are allowed to do with unaccompanied children since then, and it says they have to stay in safe and sanitary conditions. Um, the case originated when um, the Immigration Service would use ch- Central American children brought into the country following their parents who had fled violence in Central America, and the government was trying to use them as bait to catch the undocumented parents and then arrest the whole family and deport everyone. Through a variety of um, political pressure and changes in policy, 
the Flores litigation established a floor standard that the children should be reunited with their families regardless of their parents' immigration status and during the short time that it might be necessary to keep them in some protective situation, they had to have certain conditions. Now, what this is about is a bigger picture of the Trump administration pushing for discretion that should not be reviewed by the courts. So what they're arguing about is that the original Flora's order says the children should be in safe and sanitary conditions, but it does not say toothbrush, soap, warmth, comfortable sleeping. And now the Trump administration would like to be able to define that beyond the bounds of common sense. And they don't want the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the West Coast, telling them what safe and sanitary means. Uh, Moni, do you have some reaction there? Yeah, I think the other part of this bigger picture is the continued dehumanization of immigrants and people of color generally. And so I think that these arguments that seem ludicrous to us listening to them of how could you know, children or anyone be kept in these terrible conditions is a policy that has been building on itself through the expansion of incarceration, criminalization of immigrant communities and other communities of color, the expansion of private detention centers, and again, just the dehumanization of folks that we've been hearing, not just from the Trump administration, but this is this is not this is not start in 2016. This has been an ongoing challenge. Uh, through previous administrations. And so I think that's that's where we are right now. It's building up on what was set up by previous administrations. It seems like uh, previous administrations were, were using immigrant detention and deportation, the Obama administration certainly did, as a tool to get um, immigration legislation passed. I mean, that 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 is, this is, the these people have been a football for a long time. I mean, they started with a mistaken assumption that I first heard articulated by Chuck Schumer right after Obama was inaugurated, that maybe if the Democrats were acted like they were more, quote, serious on enforcement, then Republicans would agree to support them with a program of legalization. Well, that's an argument that has never worked. It was a mistaken argument from the beginning. It sounds like an abused wife saying, well, maybe if I make myself more like my husband wants me to, he'll like me better. It was a loser and promoted racist acts of discretion against local communities that the Obama administration was supposedly opposed to. Yeah, and this started also with, you know, our former mayor here in Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, was part of the strategizing in the 90s around the expansion of criminalization with the laws that changed in 96. And, you know, that is something that we've continued to see, um, again, as immigrants being used as a tool for other policy changes or for political gain. Um, and so, you know, this is, again, just the... What was set up by previous administrations is now, uh, you know, really being seen visually for the first time by many people, even though it's something many of us have been working against for a long time. What is there something effective going on now that is going to change conditions for these children? Is, is, is this whole process going to, um, you know, I mean, the administration? The Trump administration, which doesn't want to allow people, you know, to you know, to be outside of detention, uh, is that going to 
uh, but they've had to do it because there's so many. Is, is there some way forward here that's going to get better conditions? I mean, I'm hoping the way forward is for the general public to understand that detention is never the answer for any circumstances and that detention and private detention, again, has been used. Uh, and there's no such thing as humane detention. And so hopefully people will start seeing um, that that is the way forward. I don't know that, you know, this administration in every single way possible has shown that it, it doesn't care about what the law is or any orders from courts. You know, we've seen them implement policies that they knew were unlawful from the beginning. And so, you know, I think we, we need to use the courts to hold them accountable. But beyond the courts, we need to make sure that our public is engaged so that they hold all politicians accountable to make sure that this doesn't continue and that it improves. Um, Susan Zesch? Yeah, so one of the things we've seen is this threat of massive raids and then pulling back the threat. Maybe they didn't have capacity. We don't exactly know the motivations. But there's a purpose of instilling fear because in some ways the Trump administration is part of its overall strategy of changing who has political voice in the United States wants to try to scare immigrants from acting in their own behalf. We had, you know, in the 1970s here in Chicago, the beginning of an immigrants' rights movement that successfully managed to stop immigration raids in supermarkets and at transit stations through political organizing and some litigation. In the 80s, the Salvadorans were very much a part of a movement to change U.S. policy on who could get asylum in the United States. And as recently as 2006, we had 750,000 people in the streets here. In On May 1st, 2006, for a massive march led by migrants that was in opposition to a bill proposed by Wisconsin Congressman Sensenbrenner that was going to make anyone in the U.S. without immigration status actually a criminal. It was going to be illegal under criminal law to be here. Well, that was fought back and withdrawn and defeated by mobilizations in cities all over the country. At this point, to say there are going to be massive raids makes people afraid. And Moni works in communities and can tell you what the mood is because it's part of trying to have the undemocratic imposition of policies. I'm talking with Susan Zesch, Executive Director of the Posen Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago, and Moni Ruiz Velasco, uh, immigration lawyer and Executive Director of the West Suburban Action Project, a community-based social justice organization. Um, tell us more about what Susan was saying there, uh, the conditions and yeah. what people are facing. So people are definitely afraid. I mean, I think that, you know, there are anytime there's you know reports of heightened enforcement and i guess the reminder and what we remind our communities of all the time is that this is not new it's not like they haven't been doing enforcement actions and all of a sudden they're going to start doing them is that they are announcing mass enforcement actions the only way the administration can do mass enforcement actions is with the help of local law enforcement and so the response right now is really to demand that cities and, you know, city councils and mayors uh, order police not to engage, not to support actions by immigration authorities. Um, there, even though, you know, here in Illinois, we've been successful at passing legislation that limits what police and ICE can do. It doesn't stop the collaboration. It doesn't stop the communication. Um, so, so the things that Governor Pritzker signed, three pieces of legislation, it doesn't stop 
communication. That's correct. It doesn't stop. I mean, there are important steps that have been taken. In 2017, we passed the Trust Act that prohibits the police from holding someone without a warrant to turn them over to immigration. The governor on Friday signed a bill that limits a special kind of agreements called 287G agreements that deputize police to be ICE agents. Um, but it doesn't limit all collaboration and all communication. And so that is one really important step that as communities, we can demand that police not collaborate, not communicate. Um, but we also have a, a 24-hour hotline that people can call uh, when they see enforcement or if they themselves are impacted by enforcement or if they have questions about what to do uh, that is is 1-855-HELP-MY-FAMILY. Uh, it's a 24-hour hotline. It's in multiple languages. Uh, and we also have rapid response teams around the city and the suburbs that are responding when we get reports of a local action. We have people who are you know, always available to go and check and verify and help provide support to the families. Well, you know, there's been so much uh, rhetoric um, in support of uh, – People who are facing these issues, but why don't why don't the, the authorities cut the cord between ICE and local authorities? What, what it, I mean, would they be? Are they afraid of lawsuits? Are they afraid of being the ones who are breaking the law? Uh, that that oh my gosh, well these guys, the, the federal authorities maybe are right. There's there's a law in the books, and we've got to enforce it. Is that bad? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, we've been negotiating these bills at the state level with local law enforcement. So we've been in direct communication over the past few years, you know, directly with the law enforcement agencies. I think generally there is a culture with law enforcement of collaboration and camaraderie. They are not obligated by any kind of law to collaborate. Uh, although oftentimes I think people think that they are, law enforcement agents think that they are, but they are not obligated. Um, I think it's more than anything, you know, they, they see law enforcement as a joint uh, purpose, whether they're federal or state or local, uh, but that's clearly not the case. And there are very different ways of operating, and there are very different ways of um – uh, there are different missions within the different law enforcement agencies. So, you know, it is our job to continue to push these law enforcement agencies to stop collaborating with ICE because there's already very little trust, especially in our communities of color, of law enforcement. And to have them additionally collaborating with ICE completely destroys any possibility of communities ever trusting local agencies. And there are some police officials who agree with that, that they believe they're normal activities and their legally mandated activities are to deal with crime in their communities. And if victims or witnesses, because they are immigrants, are afraid to talk about crimes that they have seen committed or of which they have been victims, then it's going to hurt their function that is what their appropriate mission actually is. Um. Now, we've got a delay of two weeks from the president. He says that uh, – I mean, is that Fourth of July weekend? Anybody <laughs> doing it right? Um, and the, um, the – you know, Dick Durbin is supposedly negotiating with Lindsey Graham and uh, Jared Kushner on, on asylum laws. Um, is this something that is solvable in two weeks? Well, they haven't been able to figure it out in 30 years. I don't see how they're going to do this in two weeks. I also don't think, you know, that um, 
finding a, a legislative solution in two weeks is not a feasible and good solution where uh, communities are being consulted or, in, you know, communities that are directly impacted are going to be made a part of it. And I think what this is fundamentally about, it's about the balance of political power in the U.S. If the Trump administration can create fear in immigrant communities, immigrants are not going to want to answer questions on the census about their citizenship if the administration is successful in keeping that in, and even if the question is taken out of the census. So the census is used to redistrict Congress every 10 years, and the Constitution clearly says they count persons. So if you can get an undercount in districts that have high non-citizen populations, that means power shifts from Democrats to Republicans, and I think that's what it's all about. Susan Zesch is executive director of the Posen Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. And Moni Ruiz Velasco is an immigration lawyer, organizer, and executive director of PASO, or the West Suburban Action Count Project. It is a community-based social justice organization. Thank you both for joining us and talking about what's been happening with the ICE raids and the Trump administration. Thank you. Thank you, Jura. Just a few years ago, there were only a few hundred immigrants from Kyrgyzstan. Now we have thousands. Coming up next, our food and culture and and environment contributor, Monica Eng, introduces us to Chicago's growing and thriving Kyrgyz community. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Kyrgyzstan is a Central Asian country that borders China, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. In the past 15 years or so, Chicago went from virtually no Kyrgyz citizens to thousands. Worldview's food, health, and culture contributor Monica Eng recently met up with a leader in Chicago's Kyrgyz community to learn more about the community's origins, foods, and concerns. Today, I'm at the Kyrgyz Community Center in Saganash on the northwest side, and I'm talking to one of the board members of the community center. And can you please introduce yourself, sir? Uh, my name is Kairat Mavlian-Kulov. I'm a board member at Kyrgyz Community Center. I've been in Chicago since 2002. So, Kairat, I spent some time in Central Asia in the early 90s, and I've noticed over the years lots and lots of um, Kyrgyz restaurants opening up, Chibek uh, Chulu, Chaihana, Bai, and sometimes when I'm in a cab, I'm like, oh my gosh, you look like me. Uh, you look like you're from Central Asia. And I've always wondered, so how is it that suddenly, after you know 200 years of Chicago, we're seeing a, you know, a fairly substantial Kyrgyz community develop here? Well, you're right. I mean, you've seen a lot of restaurants uh, lately. The reason that there are a lot of young communities and from Kyrgyzstan, and they needed their own food, own culture. So therefore, they're you know they needed uh, restaurants to be opened up. And a lot of people they came in for the last ten years, um, so the community grow, and we see that there is a need for it. And therefore, we founded this organization as a nonprofit uh, four years ago. 
Okay. And basically, it was after the fall of the Soviet Union and after 9-11, more opportunities for immigration to the United States opened up? Yeah, you can say that. I mean, after right after Soviet Union collapsed, and there were a lot of opportunities for people to go outside of the country for school, for study, for work. As you know, that right after 9-11, the U- United States opened up their first base in Central Asia, which was in Kyrgyzstan. Of course, that's helped out a lot of uh, people to come to the United States by having their visas. So for those who don't know what Kyrgyz culture is, some people say, oh, a mix between Turkic cultures and Russian cultures, but also some nomadic cultures and like Western Chinese. I know I hate to just compare it to others, but what would it be an intersection of? Um, the Kyrgyz, we have very, I would say, a little bit mix of it. Of course, we have our own unique Kyrgyz culture as well. That is differentiated from those two. And a big part of culture, as I love to explore, is food. And I have seen all these restaurants, and I've been so excited by them. First of all, if someone wants to try Kyrgyz food, what would be the first and second dishes you would recommend? Well, it would be uh, ash. It's called a rice uh, with the meat and carrots that is cooked. And the second one might be like a mantu or beshbarmak, made with the noodles with the meat. That might be the first coming to the mind for Kyrgyz dishes. Okay, and Ash, uh, some people in other countries call plov, like a pilaf. It's one of these wonderful dishes where you can um, serve tons of people at a wedding or at a party. And it can have meat or carrots or garlic. It's making me hungry just thinking about it. <laughs> and mante, I love that. Those are sort of the dumplings, the large dumplings that can have um, pumpkin or they can have vegetables or meat. Yeah, mostly in the southern part of the country, you know, when they have a lot of guests, they tend to do uh, plov. A plov, it's in Russian, pilav, it's in Turkish, but we say ash. Uh, then if you go up to the northern country, northern Kyrgyzstan, they make it beshbarmak. It's made with the, like noodles, handmade noodles, and as well as with the meats uh, that serve for their guests. And beshbarmak, it means five fingers? Yes. So who is immigrating? I've seen a lot of really young people. Is it mostly young people coming to Chicago? Um, there are some a little older people, but I would say more people that are coming for the students visa they have a green card the people they're applying for it and and we see a lot of young generation and especially in chicago greater area okay so if we look at the 2010 census and we're coming up on the 2020 census how much of a change do you think we're going to see in chicago when it comes to the Kyrgyz community sure so when i came in in 2002 as a student i was um upset without seeing any Kyrgyz people here And I started meeting more people starting coming after 2003. You know, if you look at the 2010 numbers, I would say we were less than 500 people. Then in today's numbers, I would say more than 3,000 people. Wow. And uh, what kind of careers are they going into? You know, you come into the United States, you just have to start from the scratch. Or most people, they're starting with their students and they just have to do some legwork. Right now, a lot of people, they're going into the... I would say more IT, technology, and software developments, and as well as they are doing their own business and entrepreneurship routes. And as well, there are some people who are doing their great uh, PhD programs, working in a big companies such as McKinsey, and we're working in a different uh, nonprofit or for-profit entities in the finance world or business development side. Yeah. listening 
to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Monica Eng, talking about Kyrgyz culture at the Kyrgyz Community Center in Saganesh. So, Karat, what are the foods that you miss most about Kyrgyzstan? Well, um, since we have restaurants here, such as Bai Cafe and Jebek Joli, you know, whenever we miss it, we just go up there and just have the food and feel like we are just living in Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> Oh, well, someone told me that there's some foods that you really can't find. And one of them, she said, was kurut. Do you know what that is? <laughs> yeah, the kurut is made out from the yogurt. You dry it out and, you know, you, you leave it under the sun. That makes it up a little bit hard. You just, you know, whenever you're hungry, when, when we're little kids, we just put it in the mouth and just you just sucked it. So, yeah, that, that's right. You know, kurut is, you can't find it here. It's kind of a combination between a jawbreaker and a warhead, those really sour candies. And I remember all the kids, when I would go into the next bigger town, they'd say, bring me some kurut, bring me some kurut. <laughs> and there'd be some women who bathed them, and I'd bring them back just like candies. And I was surprised. I said, these taste like sour yogurt. Yeah. <laughs> but kids loved them. Yeah, it, it is lovely. I mean, when you, as I said, when you're just hungry, you just put it in your mouth and just you know, have it for about 10, 15 minutes. It'll just melt it. And it's better for you than sugar. Yes. So if people want to learn more about Kyrgyz culture, how can they do that in Chicago? Well, we founded our organization back in 2015, late 2015. And we see the need that people, they have a community center to come together. The organization is dedicated to helping our community through like social, cultural activities, uh, basically like to encourage and, and the preservation of their cultural values. And second one is like, you know, introduce our culture to our communities. Hey, you know, this is a Kyrgyz culture to exchange, to have the better friendship uh, with our community. Thirdly, is, you know, we have a lot of uh, little kids that are raising who want to make sure that they believe they have their native culture, appreciation of their language, so they can be educated for the best of the global. Do you have language classes or culture classes here for them? Yes, we do. We provide uh, you know, weekend schools starting from age of five and above. So they come in and it's just basically volunteer purposely. They come in, they learn our Kyrgyz alphabets and how to write it and about Kyrgyzstan. And we'll make them uh, some events starting from like, fall to like uh, spring. So they get to start and speak and learn about our culture. I remember as a kid, um, all my friends would go to Hebrew school or Greek school or Chinese school on the weekends, but now kids can go to Kyrgyz school. Oh, yeah. I mean, the kids, they come in, especially we teach them about Kyrgyz values and cultural, socials, and they get to learn how to dance in Kyrgyz. They wear the national costumes and, and, and they dance in Kyrgyz in front of the people. And wherever we go, for instance, the weekend school, they send out their kids to the like international festivals to Michigan to Illinois they go out there they showed our case our Kyrgyzstan flag raising up them and they just dancing they showing hey we are the Kyrgyz people in the United States which is so exciting is there a Kyrgyz neighborhood in Chicago or is everybody spread out well when I came in we started living in Northside and Lincoln Square and we grow and and they spread out entire the city of Chicago and as well as the suburbs. But we're in a spread out in the Chicago area. Okay, I know that sometimes in the summertime, some Kyrgyz families would go up into the mountain pastures with their horses and spend the summer up there. Is that something anybody misses? Well, everybody misses that. And we get to see, uh, we get to travel to Kyrgyzstan once a while to do that. However, most of them 
as you know, it's just quite expensive to travel, especially if you have any kids and you have to, you have to dedicate some time for travel. It takes about one and a half days to get there and come back again. Uh, of course, we miss those days, so that's why we want every Kyrgyz people to come into the Kyrgyz community to get to know each other, whatever they have, so they can come in and share their values, whatever they have. And our doors are open for our Kyrgyz community as well as for other communities as well, too. Okay, and so what would you say are some of the top issues in the Kyrgyz community? Well, we just want to make sure every Kyrgyz people, we want them to preserve their identity. We are Kyrgyz, but in the meantime, even if the kids that were born in America, they're Americans, but they're Kyrgyz Americans. And the second thing is we promote education, how available to them. And we make our seminars here. It's totally free for our community. We invite professors, we invite from top 10 business school students or PhD programs. So we come down, we tell them the education is more important in the United States because we want to add value to America as being a Kyrgyz community. And thirdly, we value the family bindings each other how the Kyrgyz community having any issues, if they have anything else. So we just come in, help them out. As I said, we're a nonprofit or volunteer basis that, you know, we want to make sure our community is living in, in a good manner and a good friendship and as well so we can promote our values to our communities, how Kyrgyz community lives in the United States. Where can people find out more about the Kyrgyz Community Center? We are located on northwest side of Chicago, where is a Peterson and Sister area. So we opened our office three years ago, and we have a little smaller uh, office, and uh, we try to welcome everybody to come by. And you're on Facebook? And, and our Facebook and our website is cruisecommunity.org. They can find us. They can follow us. We always make sure we follow our spring festival. It's called like uh, Norus. And we have Independence Day since 31st of August. We make a huge picnic for our old communities. And we have a summer picnics and our other traditional holidays that they can follow us through our Facebook, our website, or through our office in the northwest side of Chicago, which is Cicero in the Peterson area. All right. Well, Kairat Mavlian Kulov, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. That was Worldview's food, health, and culture contributor, Monica Eng. Tomorrow on Worldview, the rerun election in Istanbul delivered a more forceful shock to President Erdogan. We'll talk about the new mayor of Istanbul tomorrow on Worldview. Come back for that. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida, and thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ.